Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even though there is a growing consensus around the world that we need to regulate technology, there is no consensus on what that regulation ought to look like. Let's use our democracy to be developing sensible, considered tech regulation and policy in this space and shaping the adoption and implementation of that technology. So focus on what Australia does best. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Jennifer Jackett, a Sir Roland Wilson Scholar at the ANU National Security College. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Today, I'm joined by Professor Anu Bradford and Professor Johanna Weaver. Welcome to you both. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Anu is a Henry L. Moses Professor of Law and International Organisation at the Columbia Law School. She is also the author of the recently released book, Digital Empires, The Global Battle to Regulate Technology. Her previous book, The Brussels Effect, How the European Union Rules the World, was named by Foreign Affairs as one of the best books of 2020. Johanna is the founding director of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University and also a regular guest lecturer at the ANU National Security College. Before joining ANU, Johanna was Australia's independent expert and lead negotiator on cyber issues at the United Nations. With today's conversation, we're going to cover a range of themes from technology competition to innovation and regulation. Let's get into it. The first theme is going to be on technology and disruption. As listeners know, we are in a period of great uncertainty in the international system, marked by economic and social upheaval and geopolitical rivalry. Technology is at the centre of these dynamics and reshaping everything from how we communicate and work through to the power of nation states and how we fight wars, as we have seen in Ukraine. So can I get you both to start with the big picture? How do you see technological advances disrupting the world in which we live and the opportunities and risks ahead of us? Anu, I might get you to start first and then turn to Johanna. Yeah, so thank you so much. So this would be alone a long conversation because technology is disrupting our lives in so many ways and all facets of, of our lives. So obviously there has been massive 
and disruptions in terms of the economic opportunities that technology offers. It changes the way we work, conduct ourselves professionally. Uh, it brings tremendous efficiency benefits and uh, has been a source of economic growth um, in, in ways that I think is, is absolutely significant. But I think it also has really changed the social fabric of our societies, the way we communicate, the way we interact with information and with each other. So the entire communications architecture is now really determined by the communications technologies. But also then, uh, increasingly now we are aware of the sort of the how technology is changing geopolitical environment around us. So the idea that these uh, economic opportunities are also often tied to sort of strategic advantages that the countries can gain through uh, access to technology. And in today's um, sort of conflict-ridden world uh, where um, national security considerations and geopolitical concerns are driving policymaking, technology and, and tech wars have become increasingly central concerns for government and defining not only our national security, but increasingly our economic policies. So um, there certainly has been some, some forces that I would identify as ma major disruptions. And I think what is relevant here is that these disruptions have been both extremely positive, but also extremely concerning. And that, I think, is a big challenge for policymakers, is that how do you preserve those opportunities that technology brings about? And, and how do you then guard against the, the, uh, the, the negative disruption? And I think there's no other domain where this is as pertinent as when it comes to recent developments in artificial intelligence, where both the upside and the downside scenarios are really significant and something that, that the, all the countries need to figure out the best ways to, to try to pursue uh, policies that are sound and, and reasonable and, and sensible, and, and that then protect the, the economic interests, the geopolitical interests of individuals and in our societies. Thank you. Yes, these are very live issues in respect of artificial intelligence. Johanna, how do you see these upsides and downsides of technology? Mm. Well, look, I, I think there's a, 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 common, um, a common trap that we often fall into when we're talking about these, particularly in the security spaces, that we focus very much on the concerns and the challenges. And so I really want to pick up on what Anu was saying about the opportunity and the risk. And, you know, I think one case study that really highlights this for me is if you look at the situation in India and in a, a very short period of time, so they've gone uh, through giving most, almost all of their citizens, nearly a billion people, a digital ID, and they've also implemented something that they call universal payment infrastructure. The combination of those two technological innovations, which were they, they built and designed in India, um, meant that they went from a population having 27% um, of the population with a bank account to 80% of the population having a bank account in just nine years. Now, what that means, so bank accounts uh, are often then are a measure of um, jumps in uh, GDP and, and productivity of a country. And so the International Bank of Settlements have done some uh, analysis of that transformation and say that in that nine-year period, India advanced 
um, if they had have done that using sort of analog infrastructure, it would have taken them 47 years. So this is really just picking up on Anu's point about why governments are focused on these issues. Yes, we're concerned about the security risks and those risks are very real. Um, I don't mean to minimise those. But we also have governments that are really scrambling to to grab hold of uh, the development benefits, the economic benefits for their populations. And therein lies part of the challenge. So when people, people often come to me and say, are you a, an optimist or a pessimist in this space? And I'm fundamentally an optimist. I do think that technology will be at the heart of solving solutions that are the biggest solutions that we of our time. So responses to climate change, the food we eat and the fibres we wear going into the next decade. This is actually, these are going to be technological solutions. We do absolutely need to look closely at the risks. My concern, and I'm sure we'll drill down on this in in the conversation, is that we're often, when we're looking at the risks, looking at regulating or implementing policy um, and responding to the wrong risks. So, you know, we're focused on domestic issues when actually we need to have international Mm. cooperation or vice versa. Um, And so I think we really, we've got a generation um, of public servants and policymakers that are still grappling with how do we actually regulate how do we actually ensure that we get those upsides without the without the uh, the risks proliferating thanks johanna and that was a really striking example from india mm. and india is a fantastic case of where these technologies can be scaled to such a degree and really transform the state of development given the size of their population and just picking up on that point about responding to the right risks I'd really like to get into that a little bit later because I think policymakers very much are struggling with how to think through both the opportunities and risks of technology um, and sort of harness the opportunities and manage the risks in a really appropriate sort of balanced way. That leads me into the next question, which is around regulation. So as you both know, technology is not neutral. Governments, companies, societies all play a role in shaping how technology is developed. And in part, that can happen through regulation. Anu, your book looks at these different approaches to regulation, principally between the United States, China and the European Union. So could I get you to start just by providing an overview of some of the key arguments in your book and those three different approaches that you outline? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the premise of the book is this idea that even though there is a growing consensus around the world that we need to regulate technology, there is no consensus on what that regulation ought to look like. Mm. And and I think there are three primary ways to, to, to think about a governing digital society. And, and those are captured by these different regulatory models uh, that are pioneered by the United States and China and the European Union. So the US follows what I call a market-driven model. So it is really focusing on free market, the free internet, and incentives to innovate. There's very little willingness to allow the government to step in and regulate the marketplace. Instead, there's much more trust in handing the governance over to the tech companies themselves. So it is a very techno-optimist, techno-libertarian vision of the world. 
Um, China, on the other hand, uh, China uh, follows what I call a state-driven regulatory model. So the main goal of the Chinese government is to make China a technological superpower. But the Chinese government is also harnessing technology towards its political goals, towards censorship, surveillance, propaganda, in order then to maintain social stability and entrench the, the control of the, the Communist Party. Um, the Europeans, on the other hand, they're often in the public conversation portrayed as being forced to choose between the US and China. But I don't think the Europeans are willing to, nor are they forced to, choose between these two models. They are very uncomfortable with this state-driven digital authoritarian model that China is following. But they are also not comfortable with the American uh, market-driven model. So the Europeans follow what I call a rights-driven model. So it is a human-centric vision of digital transformation that focuses on the protection of fundamental rights of individuals, the preservation of democratic structures of the society, and also this notion of greater fairness, a more fair distribution of gains from the digital economy, shifting power away from the large platforms to smaller companies, to the internet users and to public at large. So the book then discusses these three different regulatory models, but it also calls these, these countries um, or these jurisdictions empires, and it does it for a reason. So it is a metaphorical reference, but at the same time, it reflects this understanding that none of these regulatory models are confined to the jurisdiction itself. Instead, it's, instead each digital empire is exporting its respective regulatory model abroad and in the process then expanding its relative spheres of influence. So the focus of the book is really to think about these battles that we observe in the digital space when these different regulatory models clash. And there's the horizontal battle between the three empires, between the US, China and the EU, but I also talk about the vertical battle, the battle between the governments and tech companies. And the book is ultimately asking whether one of these digital empires prevails in the horizontal battle, and then also whether it is the tech companies or the governments that are ultimately in charge. Thank you for that. There's so much to unpack there. The first issue that I wanted to pick up on is really the different values that appear to be embedded in these different regulatory approaches. When it comes to the US and EU, are there any areas of complementarity in their systems? So absolutely. I think it's it's very interesting if you think about these values that the United States is very committed to fundamental rights, but it is mainly focusing on a particular fundamental right, which is the freedom of speech. And that is really the, the, the right that is a guide in the US in its regulatory responses, whereas the Europeans are often seeking to balance that, that freedom of expression with other fundamental rights, including the right to privacy or the, the, the dignity of individuals, non-discrimination. So there's sort of a greater set of rights that the EU is trying to then balance off and, and reconcile. And another example I would, I would mention that compared to China, the US and the EU are very much on the same page in being committed to liberal democracy. But 
even if they share that value and that goal, they often end up pursuing different regulatory policies in order to preserve that goal. So if you think about content moderation, for instance, often the Europeans are uncomfortable with certain speech on online platforms that they believe can can destabilize democracy. Whereas then often the Americans are defending that that particular speech should stay uh, uh, up there and should not be taken down exactly because they believe that that kind of discourse is also important part of the discourse that takes place in a democracy. Mm. So this has real implications for the practice of democracy in both of these societies. Anu, I'm conscious you've just recently been in Singapore, and I'm, I wonder um, how you how you see your the the three different empires, which I really love the way you've conceptualised those. How that how that works within um, the Indo Pacific region. So when I look, um, and you know, I've spent quite a lot of time. Um, engaging with governments in the region on these issues. And there's actually a little bit of everything. So each of those three models. So if you think about a country like Singapore or a country like India, they really do, they are driven by the market. Um, They do have uh, a proclivity towards state control uh, and, and control of information, many of the countries in our region. And there is also still this sort of rights-based approach. You know, if you look at um, from the Indian situation, um, the way that their high court, for example, had three separate challenges to the digital identity. So uh, um, do you have any observations about the influence of uh, the Indo-Pacific on the empires that you have so clearly articulated? So I I really love that observation, Johanna. I think it's very central because... um, In the end, the spheres of influence of these digital empires are, in fact, overlapping in many markets, Mm. I think for several reasons. So first of all, each of the empire is expanding their influence through different means. So the U.S. is often exporting the private power of its tech companies. China is exporting the infrastructure power, building these 5G networks, surveillance cities, data centers, undersea cables. And the Europeans are exporting their regulatory power. So you see many markets where you observe American tech companies, Chinese infrastructure, and European regulations. It's really interesting that you you, um, highlight Singapore and India. I think those are really prime examples how none of the empires can say that, look, these guys are exactly within my sphere of influence and they follow our values. So Singapore is very comfortable with markets. So it has always been a very open economy. It's quite reluctant to have strict regulatory uh, architecture in place. But at the same time, it's not exactly the country of free speech. There's a lot of regulation in terms of the the content moderation. And and that sort of brings it a little bit closer to the, the Chinese model. And yet it also has been very closely following some of the sort of rights-driven policies in the EU and has been sort of importing some elements of them to tailor to its, its own uh, domestic system. And Singapore is an example. They have a very competent government. They have, a, they, they have a, the, the capability to adjust the policies and tailor them and pick and choose depending on the, the needs of the country. Um, And India, I think even if you look at India's um, data privacy law, um, it is incorporating many aspects of the European GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. 
but then it has very strong data localization provisions. That is clearly something that resembles much more the Chinese state-driven model. So I think this is a really helpful one for us to pause and reflect that, that we do see a sort of a, a, a variations of different combinations of these elements in different markets. Mm-hmm. And and I wonder whether, um, you know, if we have this conversation in five years' time, whether there might be a fourth digital empire uh, in, in India. They're certainly positioning themselves and wanting to be uh, in that. And they have uh, knowledge and the engineers and the companies, the population, um, and uh, they are looking increasingly to export that, including uh, through their digital identity and various things. And, you know, when that is combined with um, some of the security concerns that come with that, that, that raises interesting questions so we can reconvene in five years and see absolutely we'll be right back i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. I know I wanted to ask about the lock-in effect, I guess, of some of these different regulatory approaches, given there are overlaps occurring between models within countries, are there certain models that might prevail because of a lock-in effect that they have on how technology develops in that ecosystem? Yeah, so I think one example that I would use is that I was talking about the Chinese infrastructure power. So often China is expanding its sphere of influence along this digital silk road that they are building across uh, vast parts of Asia, Africa, and Latin America, parts of Europe. Um, I think Australia has been hesitant to take on Huawei to build a 5G network. So, I mean, there has been a, a robust conversation about the suitability of that and consistency with the country's national security uh, concerns. But but many countries have been quite willing to welcome the Chinese infrastructure. It is cheap and it's pretty good. And there are not that many alternatives for countries that want to path to digital development. So there I would uh, describe this as a variant, what you call a lock-in effect, that if China builds that foundational digital infrastructure, that is often then um, sort of conducive to using Chinese technology going forward as well, because that technology is often compatible with that existing infrastructure. It can be maintained by Chinese vendors, and it already is compatible with the Chinese standards. So that can then lead to the kind of path dependency, 
whereby China can continue to then send its engineers and guide the country in digital development and, and then entrench those gains that it was initially able to set when it entered the country. It's interesting to think about Chinese digital um, infrastructure provision and the question of whether it really is cheap because the cost up front might be cheap and the quality might be good. But as we have seen, there might be other costs in the long term, whether that's in terms of a much higher cost of operating and maintaining that infrastructure or even trade-offs when it comes to things like data security and sovereignty. So there's a sort of short-term versus long-term consideration probably for many countries taking on that infrastructure. But it's very hard in a region where the digital infrastructure needs are so great and there's many countries that are looking for that inward investment and Chinese technology firms are able to match that and provide that. And, it, and it's not just that their digital infrastructure needs are so great, it's that their fundamental needs as countries is so great. And that's why I, I sort of started with that example of India and how it's leapfrogged 47 years of development in nine years. And so it's not it's not just them saying, look, we need to have better mobile connectivity. They're actually trying to feed their population. They're trying to educate their population. And this is, this is what I mean by if we if we bring that contextualization to the motivation of countries in the region we will have a lot more empathy and be able to understand their very legitimate development needs and and then understand why they're making the national security decisions that they're making which for a country like australia might seem quite foreign um or or that you you look at it and go why why would you do that um you're giving potentially giving giving away your national sovereignty but if you're balancing that with feeding a population, uh, educating a population, you can see why politicians that are operating, particularly politicians that need to be re-elected, are making the decisions that they're making. And that, I, I think, also comes back to Anu's point about we really need to be providing alternatives um, to this type of infrastructure that China is offering. Mm-hmm. That's such an important point. Anu? Now, I was just going to reinforce this, uh, this, uh, this idea that there is a different hierarchy of concerns in different countries. So, for instance, this um, concern over data privacy due to surveillance. Some of these countries say, look, it is a luxury concern. I am quite fine having surveillance cameras blanketing my cities. I'm worried about my personal safety. I'm worried about the crime in this country. And more law enforcement, the better for me. So privacy is not in the top 20 of my concerns, many people in these developing countries say. There was also an an anecdote that I included in the book that when the U.S. was trying to persuade Malaysia to uh, turn down the Chinese infrastructure and was alluding that, look, you will expose yourself to surveillance by Beijing. The response by Malaysia was, what is there to spy on in Malaysia? So it's one of these issues that the countries do not all see as sort of heightened security concerns, as for instance, what the United States communicates. And then the privacy concerns, some say, look, it is a European luxury concern and we just don't share that. Mm-hmm. And if I if I could just add to that, Anu, I've had I've had conversations with people in the region, um, and you know, probing this issue of aren't you concerned about um, about Chinese surveillance? And they sort of look at me and say, 
But if China's not doing it, well, then the US is doing it or Australia's doing it. And again, it's this perspective of being able to say these countries are in a position where they are making decisions, sovereign decisions, um, and looking at it from the perspective of their country. And that that's a really fair concern when you look at uh, the history and, and some of the information that's come out, uh, for example, through um, through WikiLeaks and, and various different uh, different means. So I, again, it's just bringing that that different perspective. Um, and uh, not to keep harping on about India, but uh, the uh, the anecdote that you gave there, Anu, um, I, I was talking to my taxi driver last time I was in India and asking him about, so, you know, are Indian, you know, the average Indian person on the street, are they concerned about the fact that um, their data might be accessible to the Indian government? And he sort of turned, we were at, uh, in traffic, so he sort of turned and looked over his shoulder in this wry, wry sort of look. And he said to me, Madame, most, most, the government is having trouble getting most people to be able to go and find a toilet to use. Um, they're not, Indian population are not concerned about whether the Indian government is using their data. They're concerned about access to toilet and water. And that to me also just makes you stop in your tracks and reconsider uh, the, the perspectives that people are bringing, which is not to say we shouldn't be concerned about the data because we should be, um, but it is um, going to that hierarchy of needs that Anu was talking about. Yeah, it very much is a question of sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I think also for the US and close allies like Australia, there's a tendency to view all of these technology issues through the prism of geopolitical competition, but there's so many other issues and priorities at play, especially for countries in the region. I might shift the conversation slightly to get into regulation itself and what good regulation looks like. And here, Johanna, I'd love to bring you in. Um, when policymakers talk about regulation, I don't think it's always clear exactly who needs to be regulated or what needs to be regulated. And we're seeing this conversation around artificial intelligence right now. There's so many aspects to an artificial intelligence enabled system, whether that's the data, the algorithms, the telecommunications networks, but the conversation doesn't seem to get to those issues quite yet. Um, of course, in your role as the founder of the Tech Policy Design Centre, you talk about these issues and think about these issues day to day. So can I get you to start with what you think good technology regulation actually <laughs> looks like and how can government work with big tech and civil society to get there? Yeah. Look, I think... Um, the mission of the Tech Policy Design Centre is um, to shape technology for the long-term benefit of humanity. And we really see regulation and policy as one of the most powerful tools that we have to do that. And we often, I think, lose sight of the fact that, yes, of course, technology is reshaping humans. Um, Anu's introduction talked about the way it's changing power and influence among states, the way that we're engaging on it uh, socially, the way we're working. Um, but I think we, we often lose sight of the fact that humans shape technology, at least for the moment. Um, and so if humans shape technology, we can shape the technology that is shaping us. And so fundamentally, when it comes to looking to regulate it, it's saying, well, if this technology is having such a large impact on shaping our societies, 
we need to have an actual conversation about what we want those societies to be, whether we're looking at that from a national security perspective, whether we're looking at that from a, a health and well-being perspective, uh, whether you're looking at it from education, insert your policy issue. So I think when we're looking at regulation in this space, I mean, there's so many different ways you can go down. We, we developed a tech policy design kit, which has a set of principles, but then also a process that is attached to good tech policy design. And fundamentally, I, I think if we're going to be able to regulate these technologies, we largely have to take a technology neutral approach. We can't be creating a new piece of reg regulation and legislation for each new piece of technology government will never be able to keep pace. But I also think we need to bust the myth that government and regulation has to be slow. So we have many instances in Australia where we have regulated very quickly. So in the aftermath of Christchurch, for example, um, the Australian government, the Christchurch um, uh, uh, terrorist attacks, uh, which were live streamed, um, the Australian government passed uh, legislation in a matter of days over the weekend. So you can pass regulation quickly is that regulation good regulation? That's a that's a good question mark. But taking that tech neutral approach is really important. The other things that came out for us through the development of the design principles was um, being consultative. And this comes to your question of how do you engage with industry and with government? There's a lot of mistrust, I think, among the various communities. Um, they're, they're, the motivations uh, of government are often questioned by industry and the motivations of industry are often uh, questioned by government. We have public servants who don't necessarily have deep knowledge and expertise in the technology being asked and called upon by society, demanded by society to regulate in this space. We won't be able to do this unless we facilitate consultation between uh, government and industry. My team actually have developed a model uh, looking at what, uh, how you would actually put in place those um, consultative mechanisms so that you can have, government can have access to the independent expertise that they need and it is independent expertise and that's the challenge, right? If a lot of this knowledge is held within industry, well, industry, you know, the motivations for industry is very then easy to question. So how do you create that access to independent expertise? Um, it's, but it's not just about um, the relationship between government and industry. We, we also see a really interesting development about the, through the relationship between regulators and policymakers. You know, if you think in Australia, we have the amazing Julie Iman Grant, the eSafety Commissioner, doing incredible work in the eSafety space um, or online safety, online harms uh, for Anu, um, Anu's benefit. And um, But that, that relationship between a regulator and the policymaking community really in many instances has been conflated. And that, that is a challenge as well. So how do we ensure that there is enough cooperation between policymakers and regulators, but also that we're preserving the independent roles of the regulators and making sure that the regulators are upskilled? And then politicians. We can't forget the politicians who are actually making these the regulation. 
uh, and the legislation. They also very, very rarely have deep knowledge and skills in this space that are being asked to regulate in the space. So the model that we've developed um, in a report called Cultivating Coordination sets all of this out. Um, and it is actually, this is something that we can do as an interim step. My my goal, uh, what, we, what we're out to do at the Tech Policy Design Centre is actually to create an Australian public service where every public servant can talk about technology policy in the same way that every public servant can talk about things like human rights, that it's integral in everything that we do. But we recognise we do need to have sort of a stepping stone before tech policy is embedded in every element of public policy. And this model is what gets us from A to B. Thank you. That's a wonderful vision. And your centre clearly has such a pivotal role to play in lifting the capability and capacity of not only governments, but other actors in mm. Australian society to make better technology policy and regulation. I was also interested in part of this, how you're learning from international best practice. I know that you've developed something called the Tech Policy Atlas. Mm. If you could talk a little bit about that and some of the key lessons learned from that process. Yeah. So uh, the Tech Policy Atlas uh, is available if you go to techpolicydesign.au um, and it's under the projects. Um, and this is a global repository of um, tech law, policy and strategy. Um, and we currently cover 36 jurisdictions. Um, we're about to, in October, expand to 193 jurisdictions. So watch this space. And it covers everything from AI regulation to digital economy to national security to infrastructure. It's really broad. Um, and the point of the Tech Policy Atlas is saying we know that governments all around the world uh, are uh, struggling to regulate in this space. Best practice is actually pretty thin on the ground. Um, we are increasingly seeing governments stepping up and regulating. How do we actually develop a cadre of knowledge and research and expertise that draws out and learns not just what is best practice, but what should we be avoiding? Um, and so it's a pretty, it's a, uh, has a really great uh, interface that allows you to search. So for example, if you wanted to see um, which countries are active in artificial intelligence, in a couple of clicks, you can have that up. Um, and then you have access to the source documents um, and also to web archive links and PDFs, for example as we're conscious databases like this quickly become out of date. So we've really tried to design it in a way that it that it will be future-proofed. Um, and I, I think probably some key lessons that come out of this uh, for me is that regulation isn't necessarily transferable. So, you know, you have a look at, uh, you know, Fiji, for example, has recently implemented online safety um, uh, laws. We can't just pick up and drop down uh, Australia's Online Safety Act in other countries in our region because other countries in our region don't have the same um, institutions and structures that Australia does that provides protections that, that fit around that. And I think there is this um, perception that you can, and, and partly due to the Brussels effect, which um, which uh, Anu um, so famously coined the term. Um, there's this idea that you can take regulation um, from one part of the world and it will work in every other part of the world. And the tech companies like to talk about harmonisation, that we need to have global harmonisation of tech regulation. I don't think that's a realistic objective. I think what we need to be talking about is interoperability um, and the Atlas is really a tool for us all to be using. So, 
you know, I encourage the listeners to to go and have a look at it. Um, it just takes the hard work out of um, finding, you know, you, you, different governments put things on different places on websites and things. So we've done the hard work for you and you can get into the research that needs to be done in this space. And there's a lot that does. Thanks, Johanna. And I'm sure there's many policy officers listening that are <laughs> taking notes of where they can find this because that will be so useful in their day-to-day job. Anu, can I get your perspective on what you see as maybe a right model for regulation or best practice from the research that you've done? Great. So let me, before I go there, just want to acknowledge that I was stood, hanging on to every word, Johanna, when you were speaking. And I, I talk about regulation days in and out, and that was one of the most thoughtful ways to, to describe what good a good regulation is. So I, I do want to sort of send my congratulations and gratitude for the important work that you are doing, because I think the regulation often has this very negative connotation. Mm. And, and, and we, we see it as an impediment, and we probably have a chance to talk about what is the relationship between regulation and innovation. But I think we need to recognize that it is a tool that is fundamental tool in the toolkit of governments and the way that it can be used to shape societies in beneficial ways, if it is used correctly. So I think there were a couple of issues that I, I may want to follow up on. So one was when Johanna was alluding that there's often this um, perception that whether the governments are up to the task, that regulating fast-moving technologies, in, in particular now the conversation about AI, there are many who say that the governments are just not capable of doing this. They don't understand technology. So they need the resources, they need the engagement with the developers of technology to understand what it is that they are trying to regulate it and to do it well. But I am not sympathetic to this idea that the governments um, are not the right a sort of institution to, to step in and regulate technology because of the, the lack of knowledge. So, so first of all, we have governments regulating many domains of the economy that are complicated. They don't know how to build airplanes, yet we are quite comfortable that there are regulations on airline safety. These governments also don't know, necessarily our lawmakers don't know how to build, like how to develop vaccines or, or medicine, yet we still have regulations also on the safety of, of medicine. And the other thing, for instance, about AI, this is not just about technology. It is also about how this technology affects the fundamental rights of individuals and the democratic structures of societies. And I would not put the, the Facebooks of the world in charge of our democracy. I think they are some of the least competent entities to be doing that work. So in that sense, I think the governments definitely need to be uh, uh, very much uh, on the dr driver's seat. But there are a, a few in terms of what is the right regulatory model. So I am a believer in liberal democracy. Uh, so I cannot say that, that, that the Chinese regulatory model would be, uh, would be uh, sort of reflecting the, the, the sort of fundamental vision that I have about the digital society. Um, so, and I also do believe that the American market-driven model um, just did not really, it's, it's ill-suited for today's digital economy. It had a very optimistic vision at the time when the tech giants were not, uh, the, the, the kind of, uh, were not possessing the kind of control and power they have today. So I think um, it is no longer fit to govern the challenges of today's digital economy, which then leaves me um, 
to endorse primarily the European regulatory model. And that is not to say that the Europeans always get the regulation right uh, or that all regulation would be beneficial. But the, the, but the fundamental philosophy behind the European rights-driven model is the one that I am prepared to endorse. At the same time, the Europeans have really struggled to enforce those regulations. So often we see the difficulty of entrenching those rights-driven principles into actual market outcomes. And that obviously then erodes to some extent the legitimacy of the European model. So that is something that I'm concerned about. I'm also quite concerned right now about this shift in conversation when we are thinking about regulation in this more geopolitical context. Even the Europeans are now tempted to try to reconcile their rights-driven model with these goals around strategic autonomy and digital sovereignty. So there are growing pressures to then convert tech regulation into a tool for industrial policy. Demands for data localization, the converting competition policy into a tool for industrial policy, building national champions. And, and I think the Europeans should be wise to keep in mind that if they have the powerful tool, the Brussels effect, it is a tool to export good and bad regulations alike. And if the Europeans are now turning towards sort of techno-nationalism or techno-protectionism, that can also spread around the world um, the way that many of the more benevolent, I would say, regulations have, have spread. So, so yes, I am willing to endorse the rights-driven regulatory model, yet I think we need to be cautious that the Europeans remain true to actually those underlying motivations that have, I think, uh, made its model successful to date. Mm. Thank you. Yes, I think there's very active debates now around de-risking economic security that sort of build on this uh, broader narrative around decoupling from a few years ago, and that's having flow through to issues like technology regulation that presents certain risks, one of which potentially is to innovation. And I wanted to pick up on that thread that you mentioned. And I'm interested to understand from your perspective how you see innovation both shaping the way that regulation develops in technology, but also how regulations themselves have consequences for innovation. So absolutely. I, I think uh, if we just look at the the AI Act that the EU is now um, finalizing. So after two years, the legislation was almost ready to go. And then ChatGPT was introduced. And that kind of uh, uh, then sent the European lawmakers back to the drawing board to look at, okay, how does this uh, regulatory framework accommodate generative AI? How should we think about that? So obviously, the innovations in technology then require the lawmakers to rethink what are the appropriate regulatory tools. But, but let me maybe say a few words um, or say something more extensive on this notion that um, how uh, sort of regulation shapes innovation. And I think there's a, a rather entrenched view that there would be this inevitable trade-off, that the more we regulate, that somehow we are seeing less innovation. And I think this is a, a fear that um, Americans have in, in moving towards the European rights-driven regulation. They say that, look, if we follow the European path, does it mean that we no longer have those economic gains? Because where are the European tech giants? They are regulating, but they are not innovating. 
And there I would like to break this link that somehow digital regulation would always be harmful for innovation. I am fully aware that the Europeans are lagging behind in developing leading technologies, but I don't think that is due to digital regulation. Even if the Europeans were now willing to repeal the GDPR or decide that let's scrap this AI Act and not uh, proceed with legislation, that doesn't mean that somehow next year we would just see these massive unicorns emerging out of Europe. So what I rather attribute this, this, the Europeans' inability to compete with the U.S. in development of technologies is a host of other other sort of policies uh, that have been fundamental for the tech ecosystem. So, for instance, Europeans don't have an integrated digital single market. It is still a very fragmented market in terms of with cultural barriers, linguistic barriers, legal barriers. And it's much harder as a result for tech companies to scale in the EU. The Europeans also don't have the depth of the capital markets than the Americans do. So it is much harder for you to fund your innovations in the EU. Another reason that I would highlight is punitive bankruptcy laws. Failure is often fatal in Europe, whereas in Silicon Valley, it's a rite of passage. You fail and then you go and raise more money. And in Europe, you just cannot do that. There's such a stigma associated with failure, and that is not conducive to risk-taking and innovation. And maybe the, the final difference that I, 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 again, attribute much more significance than the European commitment to digital regulation is the Europeans' inability to replicate the Americans' policies towards immigration and diversity. So the U.S. has been a magnet for foreign talent. So if you look at, for instance, the over $1 billion startups in the U.S., over half of those have an immigrant founder. And if we think about the leading tech giants in the U.S. and their founders, so Steve Jobs of Apple is a son of a Syrian immigrant. Jeff Bezos of Amazon is a second-generation Cuban immigrant. So uh, Elon Musk founder of Tesla, is South African. Eduardo Saverin, uh, the co-founder of Facebook, is Brazilian. Sergey Brin, the co-founder of Google, is Russian. So these are just examples of just this amazing capacity that the U.S. has had to absorb the foreign talent. And this is where the Europeans are much, much behind. So again, the, the reason I want to mention all this is that it would be Wrong to think that if the U.S., for instance, followed the European path and adopted a federal privacy law or now regulated AI or decided to have the variant of the Digital Markets Act, which would mean an ex-ante regulation of competition, that somehow that would dismantle some of these advantages that the U.S. has around capital markets, integrated uh, domestic market where the companies can scale its approach towards immigration or risk-taking. Thank you. And that's such an important point to sort of challenge the notion that regulation is necessarily a barrier uh, to innovation and just underscoring from the US perspective how important remaining open um, to that global talent flow is to their innovation power. And I think there's lessons for many countries as we enter this new era in the international system where there's a tendency uh, to look at international collaboration and immigration policy through 
through a securitised lens, but probably not thinking through the costs that that presents to our science and technology pipeline and our broader sort of innovation ecosystem. Johanna, can I bring you in on this and get your perspective on this relationship between regulation and innovation, especially in an Australian context? Mm. Yeah, I I think um, listening to to Anu um, when you put her on the spot to to choose the model that uh, that she most likes, I think this also is what brings me back to the optimism and hope for our region. Because listening to you, Anu, what you're describing is the market driven model can't can't prevail anymore in and of itself. And I I don't think there would be many people anywhere. You look at the Senate hearings that have happened in the US in the last couple of weeks, for example, around artificial intelligence, who say that that market driven model can persist um, on its own. The European rights-based model, though, has its challenges and and Anu has articulated um, many of those uh, very eloquently right now. And that's why I think countries like India, if we don't have too much of the heavy emphasis on the state control, actually present the future uh, and a really interesting and and, um, case study for us uh, going forward. Looking at this in the context of Australia, I could not agree more. One of the things, one of my bugbears is when people ask, well, how do do you balance innovation and regulation? And I just, I wish we could bust this myth um, forever because actually in many instances, regulation drives innovation. It provides the certainty for the investment for companies and innovators to uh, have the conditions that they need to be able to innovate. Um, and, uh, you know, things like visa laws, capital, research, um, these these types of things are all governed by regulation. It's just a different type of regulation and people um, aren't focused enough uh, on that. So I think from an Australian perspective, our, our particular um, value add that we have here is recognition of the fact that whilst we are technology leaders in some niche areas, we actually, what Australia is really good at um, is that we are fast adopters. And uh, when I first heard people starting to talk about, you know, Minister Husick, for example, our Minister for Industry and, and Science, he talks about this. And when I first heard it, I was like, oh, I don't want to be a fast follower. That's pretty boring. But actually, if you think about it, and if you look over history, it's the countries and the individuals who were able to take an innovation and tinker with it and evolve that have actually seen the the really positive benefits for their society and for their country. So I think Australia needs to lean into that a bit more and look at we're not, and, and that changes the focus of our regulation, right? We're not regulating necessarily the uh, development of the foundational technology. We're, we're regulating its implementation and use. And here, um, I think we, we perhaps in Australia have a tendency to want to be Australian first regulation in, in insert this area. And I think in many instances, being first is not the right measure. What we want to do is have considered regulation. And here, um, coming back to something that um, you know, Claire O'Neill, Claire O'Neill, our Minister for Home Affairs and Cybersecurity, repeatedly talks about the value of Australian democracy. We have a democracy that's functioning and that is working. There actually aren't that many countries in the world that are in that position. So let's use 
use our democracy um, to be developing sensible, considered tech regulation and policy in this space and shaping the the adoption and implementation of that technology. So focus on what Australia does best. Thanks, Johanna. That's such an important point. And it actually reminds me of some work done by an academic in the US, Associate Professor Jeffrey Ding, and he talks about diffusion power. Mm, So when you look at transitions in the international system through history in respect of technology, it's actually come about as a result of a country's ability to diffuse general purpose technologies through the economy, not as a result of who was at the leading edge of the innovation to begin with. Uh, So that's a really important point and it speaks to the opportunity Australia has as a fast follower and the way that we should see that in a positive light. Just staying on Australia, the government is looking at, well, they are developing a new cyber security strategy that's due to be released by the end of this year. What are some of the opportunities, Johanna, that you see for um, fit for purpose technology policy and regulation as part of this process? I'm chuckling there because I, I really <laughs> I really feel for the the public servants that are currently um, drafting uh, that strategy uh, and the minister's offices, having been through the process of drafting um, several strategies myself um, or being a contributor to the strategy. Obviously, it's always a big team effort. I think the biggest challenge with Australia's cybersecurity strategy is do is presenting something that is new because the the challenge around cybersecurity is that we actually have known what we needed to do as a nation and as individuals for a long time right so if you go back to previous strategies yes there'll be a lot of politics about we dropped the ball the previous government dropped the ball they didn't do what they needed to do but ultimately we knew we knew that we needed to be implementing the essential eight, which is, you know, the eight um, essential things that uh, that um, big companies need to be doing to protect themselves for, from cybersecurity. Those essential eight haven't changed. Um, we know that we need security by design, which is um, or safety by design. Um, which you know we're hearing a lot in the minister's uh, speeches and and uh, and talking points. These concepts are not new. So I think the biggest challenge that this government will have is demonstrating how they're going to implement it. How do you how do you move forward from saying we know we've we've identified the challenge in Australia because of what has happened with these really large high profile hacks in the last year, the appetite and the demand from the Australian population for the government to do something is there in a way that it wasn't before and then how do we actually now translate that into implementation so with the new cybersecurity strategy that's coming the things that I will be looking for is not so much the content of the strategy I'm not expecting there to be anything that is mind-blowingly new in that space but what I'm looking for is the action plan And then for the budget. So, you know, it's really easy to say, for example, that we need to strengthen privacy regulations. We need to have um, stronger uh, critical infrastructure protection. But if there isn't a budget for those regulators to be able to be enforcing and having oversight of those things, we're not actually going to see the implementation that we need. So for me, it's about implementation and the budget to support the implementation. Thanks, Johanna. Some great advice there for the government uh, to listen to. In the final part of this podcast, I wanted to turn uh, both of you to opportunities for international collaboration and cooperation when it comes to digital 
technologies. We know that these issues are the top of the agenda for leaders in different groupings from the quad between Australia, Japan, the United States uh, and India, through to even the AUKUS strategic partnership between Australia, the UK and the United States in a defence context. Um, So I wanted to get your take on how you see cooperation evolving, whether in multilateral groupings like the United Nations or some of these more minilateral architectures that have emerged. Anu, I might start with you. If you could sort of give your perspective on how you see the US and European Union cooperation evolving in particular, especially through mechanisms like the Trade and Technology Council, given some of the differences in their approaches, but also indeed some of those alignments on things like values. So absolutely. I I think this Trade and Technology Council uh, provides a very helpful institutionalized framework for that dialogue. So there clearly is a strong case for greater US-EU alignment, and I'm already observing that alignment, and it is going to the direction of the US moving closer to the European rights-driven model. So it is not that the, the, the Europeans are having second thoughts on whether we need to regulate the digital economy. It is the Americans that are now second-guessing their old priors and, and moving uh, uh, more towards the, the same kind of baseline. So I see a couple of drivers that are really uh, helping uh, uh, sort of move towards greater transatlantic alignment. And some are more internal factors in the U.S. and others are then more external. So internal factor is that the American public opinion has changed. So Americans want more regulation and they want the U.S. to pursue policies that are much easier to align with the European rights-driven model. And uh, so that is one. And the second is really also the idea of the Brussels effect, that Americans face a choice. Do we just outsource regulation to Europeans? They are anyway regulating our companies. Or would it be better that we actually try to have a conversation about the content of that regulation together? And so I think those are some of the, the, the reasons that, that really help the Americans think that maybe we ought to team up with the Europeans. But then there's also this external reason that whatever are the transatlantic differences, ultimately they pale in comparison of the depth of the divergence between US and China. On one hand, and now increasingly between China and the EU as well. So there is, uh, President Biden has really made uh, preservation and strengthening of democracy a hallmark of his foreign policy. there is also in the digital space uh, this, this tendency to, to frame the conversation that we are in the battle between techno-democracies on one hand and techno-autocracies on the other hand. We can talk about whether that is really always a helpful framing or whether it will alienate some countries, including like Johanna has talked a lot about India. Where do we draw the line? How Puritan uh, uh, should we be about the definition? But there is certainly an acknowledgement in the conversation that the US and the EU and countries like Australia, uh, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand, Canada, share the same value foundation, which then paves way for closer alignment of their regulatory frameworks. And and I think the, the US has been quite clear that they want to have a united front to then confront the rise of Chinese digital authoritarianism. And that, again, would then speak towards greater alignment with the Europeans. Thank you. It's clear there's more that brings us together, I guess, than that 
sets us apart and there's a very strong foundation for collaboration moving forward. Johanna, the final word to you. I guess what's your ambition for the type of role Australia can play in this broader landscape moving forward? Look, I think Australia has such an important role to play in this region, in part as, as an advocate, sorry, in the world, in part as an advocate for the region. And what I mean by that is when we, when we talk about innovation and the centres of innovation power in the world at the moment, yes, there is uh, the US, yes, there is China, but there is also this amazing driving force of innovation, digital and otherwise, coming from other countries in, in our region. And I think we we don't pay enough attention to their influence, their growing power, their rise. And those countries do listen to Australia when we talk and they listen to us in a different way than they listen to the Europeans and then they listen to uh, the folks from, uh, from the US. And so I think Australia needs to more actively recognise that role that we play and get out there more um, in shaping the thinking and providing the alternatives that are being put on the table rather than ceding that space. So I think it is possible to get regulation right. I do think that technology provides the answers to many of the challenges of the 21st century. But I do think that we can't be naive that it is going to simply shape a better future. We actively have to engage to shape that future as individuals, as policymakers and as countries. And so I would really encourage anyone listening to this, if these are issues that you have, you're interested in but feel like you're not qualified to engage in the conversation, put that aside. You have to get engaged in the conversation. Um, and please, you know, reach out um, if I I can do a short plug for our podcast that we have at the Tech Mirror, at the Tech Policy Design Centre, which is called Tech Mirror. Um, we talk about these issues all the time. Um, and this is the work that we're focused on. And, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer and a diplomat. I never thought I would be a technologist. So I encourage you to get engaged in these issues and help shape this future that we all want to be creating. Thanks so much, Johanna. That's some great words of encouragement there and a call to action really for everyone to get involved because we all have a responsibility to shape this future and harness the opportunities that technology brings. Well, I'd like to thank you both for such a wide-ranging and fascinating conversation. It's really been a privilege to talk to you both and, and learn from your expertise and I'm sure all of our listeners enjoyed it. So with that, we'll conclude the podcast here and I hope you all have a nice day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.